Well, folks, um, let's continue on in our series on Titus, uh, chapter 2. I always think it's, whenever there's a passage on marriage, uh, not that this passage is all about marriage, but it's always good to get your wife to read it when it's on marriage, isn't it? That's exactly right. Uh, no, not quite. <laughs> um, all right. Have Titus chapter 2 open in front of you and grab, um, if you want to grab an outline as well, that'll be helpful. That's in the, in the bulletin you received as you came in. And we'll pray together. All right, we pray. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness and kindness to us. We thank you for, the, for your grace. We thank you for your mercy, as we'll read in a few moments. Uh, Lord, we, um, we pray that we would respond with trust and obedience uh, to what you've done for us, Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, in the, uh, in the months before his execution... Dietrich Bonhoeffer, now he's the famous German theologian. If you want to read any bit, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you would be better off for it. Uh, he's written a great biography, really, really excellent. Uh, he was a theologian, pastor, and he spoke out against the Nazis in World War II and, and that sort of period or before as well. This is what he wrote just prior to his um, execution. It's on your outline as well, and uh, I've got it up there. I fear that Christians who stand with only one leg upon earth also stand with only one leg in heaven. Now think about that for a minute, will you? I'll read it again. I fear that Christians who stand with only one leg upon earth also stand with only one leg in heaven. So he said this just before his execution. See, his concern was Christians who disengage themselves with the world and simply stand by and watch. In, the case, uh, in his case, it was watch the atrocities that the Germans were uh, committing by the Nazis and so on, as if the Christian message had no bearing on how we live. That's what he was getting at. Now, the facts are, the truth of the gospel is, that the Christian message intends full engagement with the world. God wants us to engage with the world, but not blend in or sit back and just watch. He wants us to engage with the world in godliness. That's what we're looking at today in Titus chapter 2. We've, in some ways, we've been calling it effective Christianity. This is what it looks like, what it means to engage in the world with godliness, effective Christianity. So... Uh, have open chapter 2 in front of you, and verse 1, we'll just start there. Verse 1 is a contrast, and you'll see why we start here in a moment. Of course, it's the first verse, it's a good place to start, isn't it? Uh, but the NIV sadly omits the but. Now, no one likes a but being admitted. Um, and so it, it admits, it's actually a contrast. It's, it should read, but you, uh, but you must teach, this is Titus uh, on the island of Crete, and Paul writing to him, but you must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. So as opposed to the false teachers, you might remember them from last week, the false teachers who claim to know God but deny him by their actions, but you, you teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. Doct that, that means the truth, the trustworthy message that's been handed down to them by the apostles, uh, from the apostles. So what is in accord well, that means um, what fits with or flows from the gospel. So teach what fits with and flows from the gospel. That is godliness. 
Godliness. Godliness just means uh, being like Jesus. That's what it means. It means maturing like Jesus, living like him. A changed life through the gospel and the basis of this uh, changed life, this godliness, is the gospel itself. And we, we, we pick up on that in verses 11 to 14 and we'll spend a bit of time on that today as well. So the point in verse 1 is that Christian living and Christian teaching are inseparable. Together they amount to godliness. So look at verse 15 and in really verse 1 and verse 15 bracket the passage nicely. Look at verse 15. These then are the things you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. So verse 1 and 15 bracket the passage nicely. This is what you should teach. This is what's in line with godliness. Okay, so what does godliness look like? Well, let's look at the rest of the passage. That's what we're doing. So I guess you could say the, the verses uh, 2 through to 14 is uh, this is what godliness looks like. Uh, this is what he's meant to teach. This is the how of a changed life by the gospel. Now, I've been calling it, I guess, effective Christianity, but I reckon the more I thought about this, and, and I do apologise to the poor 8am people because I didn't think of it then, but I just thought of it only this morning as I walked back. But this is actually, yes, it's effective Christianity, but it's also effective church. This is what church looks like. So have that in your mind as you go through, and maybe I'll remember it as well. It's not part of my notes, but that's okay. Um, effective church, one way to look at it too. Okay, so there are five groups of people mentioned that Paul uh, uh, goes through. We're going to look at these. So in other words, yes, ungodliness can take different forms over the years. That's why there are specific groups mentioned, but much of what is said here is relevant to all of us. Okay. So first up are the older men, verse 2. Titus is to teach older men. Older men, meaning verse 2 is not so much about a cumulative, oh, I wish I could say that word properly, oh well, you know what I mean, number, but a comparative one, all right? You see, this is addressed to 20-year-olds as much as it's addressed to 80-year-olds. If you're older than others, then you've got to listen up. This is addressed to you. As, an, as you set an example for those who are younger. So, uh, temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and in endurance, verse 2 says. So the older men are to be examples, role models, to the younger. Temperate or restrained, that means, uh, level-headed, sober, Sober in thinking, nothing to do with alcohol at this point, but it's true of alcohol as well, but um, sober in, in thinking and judgment. Mature. Are they to be worthy of respect, these older men? They have a dignity and seriousness about them. Uh, not saying that older men can't crack a funny or two and tell a funny story. All right? Nothing wrong with that. That's a good thing. Okay? But the, the older men that Paul uh, speaks of here... The, role, the example that they hold, the role models that they are, being temperate and restrained, level-headed, they have a, a dignity and seriousness about them because they've lived life. They've lived it. You know, they've lived life. They know that life has a seriousness to it about sin and death and judgment. Older men are also to be self-controlled. That is, they are to be thoughtful about their behaviour. That's what self-control is, isn't it? Uh, not impulsive. You see, when we stop and think about the decision we're about to make, more often than not, we make a better decision. Isn't that true? <laughs> so they're to be thoughtful about their behaviour, self-control. 
they're to be sound in faith, healthy in faith, confident in God's promises, and that leads to endurance, perseverance. And then finally, these older men are to be examples of love. And the type of love they're examples of is the love of Jesus. Now, the caricature of grumpy old men is not a biblical one. You might remember those terrible movies that failed at the box office. Uh, they, they made two of them, I think, Grumpy Old Men and Grumpy Old Men 2, or whatever it's called. A grumpier old men. That's what it's called, yeah. That, that's not what we read here, is it? Not at all. That's not the picture painted here of older men. The, the grumpy old man is not in accord with sound doctrine. Going back to verse 1. Now, what about the older women? Look at the first word of verse 3. It says, likewise. In other words, all that we've said already, well, that's relevant to you as an older woman. Okay? So don't switch off. And also, don't switch off older men. What we're about to read now is for you as well. Okay, so Titus is to teach the older women to be, verse 3, reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Now, reverent means holy or set apart. You're different because of the way you live, your response to the gospel. Therefore, they're not to be slanderers or gossips. Instead, they mind their own business. They're not to be addicted to much wine. That, that's not the way we escape from the pressures of life. Uh, but, end of verse 3, the older women are to teach what is good. They'll not do these things, but teach what is good. They are to be examples of what is good in their teaching. Now, who are they to teach? Well, yes, certainly their own family, our children and grandchildren and so forth. But especially, verse 4, you can see it there, they are to train, uh, urge, trains much better, it's much closer uh, to the, what the original says, train or teach the younger women. Now we might call it mentoring. It's a pretty cool quote I came across, I'll read it to you in a second, uh, that gives some background. The, the former Apple CEO, Steve Jobs, all right, uh, who died 2011, he, he served as a mentor to the Facebook CEO, Mark Zuckerberg. The two developed this uh, very close relationship in the early days of Facebook and often met to discuss the best business and management practices of the company. I reckon Mr Zuckerberg probably needs Steve Jobs around, apparently. But anyway, that's another story. So when Steve Jobs died in 2011, Zuckerberg posted on his Facebook page this. He said, Steve... Thank you for being a mentor and a friend. Thanks for showing that what you build can change the world. I will miss you. Oh, pretty powerful stuff, I guess, for the two of them. But let me ask you this. I wonder what God can build when you mentor someone younger. I wonder what God can build. If Steve Jobs and you know, Mark Zuckerberg can build Facebook, oh, man, what can God do when a godly woman and mentors someone younger. So is there a younger woman you can be mentoring, be discipling, use that word, encouraging? Maybe you just read the Bible with them. Maybe you can uh, uh, pray with them. Even just a regular word of encouragement, a note, a, a text, an email. You could even do a handwritten letter. Imagine that. Very exciting. 
being a godly example to them. Now, there's a bit of a lie. There's a lie in our culture that sometimes infiltrates our churches today. And that is that older people have had their day of usefulness and they ought to make way for the young. It's a lie that is perpetuated from both the old and the young. So don't start pointing fingers, will you? It's all of us. Friends, don't buy that lie. It's an unbiblical thing. Uh, The biblical principle that we're reading here is quite the opposite. Older people are a resource for godliness and an example of godliness that churches must, uh, must draw on. With age and experience come wisdom. And many older women and older men have discovered wonderful secrets of, a God, of godly living. And when it comes to marriage, um, Joan and Jim Keel tomorrow celebrate their 63rd anniversary. Wow. Surely they've got something good to say about marriage. Young people, if you're getting married, talk to them. Those who have been married for about 20 years, we should talk to them too. Yeah. <laughs> they've got great things to say. Um, They've lived it. They've got great, uh, wonderful things. So raising children, getting on with the neighbours, work and whatever. If only the younger ones would listen, they might save themselves a whole lot of grief. But they can't listen if it's not being said. They can't listen if it's not being shown, if it's not being taught. Challenge for both, isn't there? Okay. Well, let's look briefly at what the older women are to train the younger women in. So in verse 4, verse 4 and 5. Verse 4, the older women are to train younger women to love their husbands and children. Now, that's not always an easy task, is it? Uh, Some husbands aren't much good. Um, There we go. Uh, It's probably me sometimes. It's a bit of a duty. But train in it. That means you keep going at it, you keep working on it, you practice putting the needs of others before your own. The priority is not yourself, but your husband and children. Now, that's not about spoiling them, by the way, uh, but loving as Jesus did, just like the older men. Remember the older men? They, they, They loved as well in Jesus' love, so to be sound or healthy in this same love. The younger women, like the older men and the younger men, are to be self-controlled, verse 5 says. Remember, thoughtful about their behaviour. Now, we'll see that word pop up a number of times, self-control. But self-controlled as opposed to the Cretans. Remember the Cretans who didn't have any self-control? Really, they just do whatever feels good and makes them happy. Right? Not, not so the younger, uh, the younger women. Are there to be pure? I think that really means sexual purity, what's being referred to here. Uh, the next little phrase is a tricky one, isn't it? It says, uh, to be busy at home. You could translate it to be good homemakers. Now, this has nothing to do with a stereotype of women staying at home and looking after the home, nothing like that, so don't draw that into it. Paul is uh, drawing attention to the home and family, the priority of loving husbands and children. That's what he's uh, talking about here in terms of being busy at home doing that. Paul's not opposed to uh, a wife's choice of paid work. No, the word here is against the habit of being lazy, being unoccupied, uh, going about house to house, minding the business of others rather than taking up their own responsibilities. That's the, the, the push here. Well, let's keep going. Older women are to train younger women to be kind 
and to be subject to their husbands. Let's take a, bit of, take a moment to think about that uh, briefly. In short, the wife submits. Now, submit means give yourself to. Okay? So the wife gives herself to her husband. Now, those words should ring a bell to us if you're a Christian person. Who gave himself for us? Jesus gave himself for us on the cross. So likewise, the wife gives herself to the husband. Verse 14, uh, that's what verse 14 refers to in terms of this great submission. Look at verse 14. Who, that's Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness. That's what Jesus did. And so it's the giving of herself to the husband. Now this is not about doing what the husband says. It's not about having him have, have the last word. It's not about um, rights. No, and neither is it about inferiority. It's about recognising or trusting in the responsibilities that God has given you and your husband in Christian marriage. Husbands are not mentioned here in the context of marriage, but they are um, mentioned in, in uh, 1 Peter and also Ephesians 5. Your responsibility as Christian husbands, as Ephesians 5 says, is to love your wife as Christ loved the church. And any decent Christian husband, hearing those words, uh, makes you think and stop. <laughs> as Christ loved the church. That's how we're to love our wives, in sacrifice and humility. Christian marriage then ought to point people, as we live it and explain it, it ought to point people, and I think uh, we'll probably have to explain it more and more these days, Christian marriage, it ought to point people to the cross. That's what it should do. Because the cross demonstrates love and sacrifice, humility, submission and so on. Now why, why live this way? Why live this way? Well, look at the end of verse, um, uh, verse 5. So that no one will malign the word of God. So when a Christian lives by the culture of the or the worldview of the day, well, they malign the word of God. They damage the gospel. They damage God's mission. They give God a bad name. Uh, they stand with one leg on the earth, to quote that Bonhoeffer, Bonhoeffer quote. You see, Christian marriages and Christian homes which demonstrate a combination of sexual equality and complementarity beautifully commend the gospel. They do. As I said, Christian marriage ought to point us to the cross. Okay, how about young men? Young men are probably at this point going, oh, this is looking pretty good. I don't have to do anything here. It's great. I'll sit back, relax. No, no, no. There's an important word for you, young men. Um, not a lot is said, though, Oh, sorry, not a lot is written, but a lot is said. <laughs> Similarly, likewise, in other words, young men, everything we've been saying before, that's for you as well. Older men, don't switch off. This is for you too. Uh, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. I think Paul knew young men pretty well. Uh, he knows a young man's struggle, self-control. Now, the, the simile in verse 6 also tells the young men that all of the above is relevant for them also. So verse 6 tells us that the effect of knowing the truth in the lives of young men is self-control. Being thoughtful about our behaviour. Older men, verse 7, need to encourage the young men and set them an example in this, especially Titus, as he teaches the, God, teaches the word of God. So in verse 7, in everything set them an example by doing what is good. Uh, Titus himself is to be such a role model 
as a church leader. And we looked at this bit last week. So in his teaching, Titus is to show integrity or pure motives. This is in contrast to the dodgy Cretans, who, who are these false teachers who, who teach for dishonest gain. That was chapter 1, verse 11. There ought to be a seriousness about his teaching, sincerity, uh, and a soundness of speech that nobody can criticise. So teachers of God's word, so if you're a small group leader, if you're a, a, a youth group leader, if you're a, a, um, a service leader and so on, if you're teaching the word of God, then we ought to have a consistency and behaviour that matches what we teach. Now Daniel's on a bad example there, sort of half the reason why we've been reading through Daniel chapter 6. Daniel chapter 6, uh, Daniel remained faithful to the word of God. Now, I don't know if he was a teacher of the word of God. I don't really think so. But he remained faithful to the word of God, just like Titus needs to do, just like a Christian person needs to do, a Christian leader needs to do. And again, verse 8, like verse 5, and soon verse 10, when we talk about slaves, the reason or purpose for Titus's example in his teaching and behaviour, his godliness, is mission. Do you see it there? So that the gospel would not be unattractive or maligned, so that those who oppose him would be ashamed and have nothing bad to say about us. So the purpose of, of what he teaches and what he, is for mission. His behavior is for mission. So that no one would have anything bad to say about us. Now that's, um, let's think about that for a moment today. I think arguably that is getting increasingly harder. Christians speak the truth, uh, as Christians speak the truth in love, uh, remaining faithful to God's word, the reactions we will receive are increasingly not at all very positive. I think gone are the days when you'd say you're a Christian person, a follower of Jesus, and they say, it was frustrating back then, I admit, but they say, oh, that's nice for you. Oh, that's great you believe in, believe in that. That's great. That's nice. I believe this, but that's great for you. Those days are gone, I think. Now, if you say you're a Christian, it's often meant, uh, met um, with accusations, uh, even bigotry, um, accusations of... of uh, of almost disgust, I suppose. Our challenge is to ensure that those accusations don't come from our ungodliness. They simply come because we follow Jesus. So Christians today, for example, are under increasingly implicit pressure to change our views on morality, especially when it comes to sex and marriage. Uh, living in the midst of a culture that believes radically different things from us has an impact. It does and pressures us to conform, even if the pressure is implicit. We're social beings. You know, we don't really want to stand out from the crowd. No one really wants that, especially if the crowd is convinced they're on the right side of history. It's hard. And if you're a student or you're at university, um, even at workplaces too, such implicit pressure to change your views can rapidly become explicit, avert, in your face. Change or will abuse you. It'll take courage to stand firm for God's word, his, his truth, but we must do it in a way that doesn't malign the gospel, that doesn't uh, result in opponents having something bad to say about us because of our ungodliness. Now, that's the same motivation for the slave's godliness. Look at verses 9 and 10. It ought not to be our behaviour that makes the gospel unattractive. Now, 
don't think 18th, 19th century African slaves. Uh, first century slaves did have some rights. It was still slavery, right? It wasn't very nice. Don't think employer, employment, employee relationship really, although that does have a, a correlation in some ways with what we're talking about. But this type of slavery that's described here was part of first century Roman culture and Cretan culture, what it was. They, the Christians had very little power to change anything in terms of government policy. So forget William Wilberforce, you know, all that sort of stuff. They had very little power. This is what they lived in, and so uh, they needed to be as best as they could in terms of the Christian witness that they had. So uh, slaves were to give themselves, like Jesus, who gave himself. They're to be subject to their masters, trying to please them, respecting their authority, not talking back, not stealing, but trustworthy. Why? What's the purpose of all that? Look at verse, end of verse 10. So that in every way they may make the teaching about God our Saviour attractive. You see their mission focused in their work? There's another translation too, put it, so that they may adorn the teaching of God our Saviour in everything. So is, that, is the way you work an adornment to the gospel? Fair question, isn't it? That's what godliness, godliness is to the gospel. It's an adornment. Uh, let me uh, give you an example of an adornment to the gospel. When my lovely wife, Michelle, um, walked down the aisle to marry me, she was beautiful without the fancy dress, um, without the expensive jewellery. <laughs> yes, you were, dear. Um, without the hair done nice, you know, um, and all that. Uh, that just added to the beauty. That's what it did. It enhanced what I already knew. That's the case of our godliness and the gospel. It's an adornment. It adds to the beauty. It makes it even more attractive. You see? Okay. Well, finally, what's the basis of this changed life? Uh, note that verse 11 begins with a four. A four. In other words... Here's the reason for this changed life, the basis of godliness. I'm going to read these verses out to us again. I'm going to make one comment and then we're going to close. Verse 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. The basis of godliness, what is it? It's the gospel. It's Jesus, the grace of God, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. There's the basis of godliness. Lots more to say there, isn't there? Like three verses, but packed. We're going to leave it there, though. Uh, we'll touch on it a bit, I think, next week. Um, why don't we pray? And then I think we'll, we've got a few minutes. We'll, um, if there's any questions or comments, uh, we'll do that, and then we're going to continue our service. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you sent Jesus to die for us. We thank you for your grace and mercy. And, Lord, we pray in response that we would, um, uh, we would be a church that is godly, 
suppose we've been calling this effective Christianity, but this effective church, a church that urges and encourages and trains in godliness. We do that, Lord, not because that will save us, but because, Lord, you have saved us. Lord, help us respond in that way. Fill us with your spirit as we do that. In Jesus' name, amen.